Welcome back to another episode of Transformation Talks. I'm your host, Sam Forget, and today's episode is one that I'm particularly excited for because I feel the subject matter is fairly unique and, to be honest, largely inspired by a series of Facebook memories that I've been looking at over the last couple of weeks. And in the off chance you were unfamiliar, Facebook memories is just a feature of Facebook, obviously, where they take old posts that you put X years ago today, whether that's four, five, six, seven plus years ago, and they pull them back up for you. And most of the time, they're fun to look at. It's some old photo where you're being goofy or taking yourself too seriously. But in my case, as somebody who's been putting out content for eight-ish plus years, I see old posts and I kind of cringe because my stances have changed on a lot of things. There are things I recommended several years ago that I would never recommend now. And I honestly just figured it'd make for a, a fun podcast episode like I said, to go back and look at some of the things that I've recommended over the years that I've changed my tune on now and almost update the record, if you will, with what I actually recommend on a variety of subjects. And the whole idea of this makes me think of something that I read from uh, strength and conditioning coach Eric Cressy, who's a legend in the industry, about programming, exercise programming specifically. And that is, if you are a coach in the field and you look back on your programs from a couple of years ago and you don't cringe, there's something wrong. You're not learning something. You're missing the mark somewhere because the second you get complacent with your knowledge, the second you get stuck in your ways, that's not good for you or your client. So in a minute, I'm going to break down eight specific things that I approach a little bit differently that I've done a little bit of a 180 on, but I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not embarrassed by it. And honestly, I hope that another 10 years from now, because 2022 actually marks 10 years of coaching and training people for me that I can do an updated episode where I slightly adjust recommendations that I'm making this year and beyond. And hopefully they won't be radically off, but you get the idea. So let's get into today's episode, which is going to start with something that I recommended until fairly recently and still do in slight variations. And that's another thing here. A lot of these amendments that I'm making, they're not necessarily drastic, but they are at least a little bit different. And this first one is banking calories for a splurge type event. For example, if you know you're going out to eat, if you have a big night of drinking ahead of you, something that I used to be very adamant about recommending is dropping your calories in a major way. And this is an important caveat here in preparation for that event. So let's say you had, let's keep the number simple here, a 2000 calorie per day goal. And I'm sitting here five years ago, maybe even three years ago, two years ago saying, well, the average meal out is around 1,200 calories. That does not account for an appetizer. That doesn't account for a drink. That doesn't account for a dessert. I would have told you to drop your calories to an amount where you could still hit your target for the day. But here's the thing. If you're looking at something on the menu that ends up putting you at 1,400 calories for the day, what? You're going to eat 600 calories all day? This is something that mathematically may make sense, but when we look at the practicality of it, an actual human being in front of you ignoring the math, it never ends up working out because let's say somebody does successfully drop their calories that massively all day. What happens when you show up to a restaurant or a night out and the only thing that you've had leading up to it is a protein shake in the morning and a grilled chick excuse me, a grilled chicken salad for lunch. You're ravenous. It takes all the willpower in the world not to overdo it in that event. So when you look at, again, the practicality of banking a lot of calories for, excuse me, for a splurge type scenario, it almost ends up backfiring 
all the time because if it doesn't backfire in that moment from a numerical perspective from you overdoing it psychologically it backfires because you end up falling into that restrict even if we're not technically call it restricting then overeating cycle or at least mindset that's not going to serve you long term so more recently something i started doing is recommending much more subtle calorie drops prior to splurge events even if it puts you over your calories a little bit. So let's use another numerical example that I'll keep very, very simple. If your goal is 2000 per day, you know your entree is going to be 1200 calories that night. I'm not going to tell you to eat 800 calories for the entire day leading up to it. I might tell you to eat 1200 calories leading up to it, which will obviously put you at 2200 for the day. It puts you a little bit over. But now, psychologically, you don't feel like I have to eat a rice cake the entire day just because I'm going out to eat later tonight. So that makes a huge difference. And then numerically, even though it puts you over a little bit, it prevents those massive buildups where you snap and eat 3000 calories because you feel so restricted. So in short, Banking calories is something that I used to recommend in a much more dramatic fashion. Now it's much more subtle. Just working with hundreds and hundreds of people over the last 10 years, I've realized it's just not a great recommendation unless it is on the more subtle side. Same goes for calorie cycling, by the way. I'm still a fan. If you're somebody who is very social, has a more full weekend calendar, if you want to drop your calories a little bit, say Monday to Friday, have some extra calories in the weekend, great. But even if you drop only 100 calories per day, Monday through Friday, you end up with an extra 250 calories per day on Saturday and Sunday. That's difference enough. Once upon a time, I might have had clients dropped you know, 200, 200 plus calories. That's too big of a swing. So banking calories, planning ahead for that stuff, while loosely a good idea, you do want to make sure it's not too drastic. So that is the first thing I've done a little bit of a 180 on. The next thing, and this is really the only exercise related one, but I do feel like it's worth mentioning, and that is using exercise as punishment. And the thing with this is 99% of people, if you ask them to their face, should you ever use exercise as punishment? Most of them, unless it's like an old school strength and conditioning coach, they're going to say no. They're going to say, no, of course not. You would never want to use exercise as punishment as punishment, not realizing that their current relationship with exercise largely resembles that. So in most cases, at least subconsciously, when most people overeat a little bit, they respond to that by working out a little bit harder. And then exercise becomes about chasing a feeling of fatigue, about sweating something out, which physiologically is not how that works at all, about undoing something that you did the day before. And to backtrack to my early days as a trainer 10 plus years ago now, this isn't something I was necessarily against. If I had a client who ate big the day before, yeah, let's burn those calories off. May have been something that I would have done at that time. I'd like to think I quickly came to my senses and stopped doing that. But I also still did punishment, excuse me, punishment-based stuff in terms of conditioning. I was working with uh, some athletes at the time, and it may be if they were late to getting to the next drill, they had to do foot fires or wall sits or sprints. And I think this is something that is ingrained in a lot of us who used to play sports. I remember in practices growing up, and this is just the way it was. I'm not trying to rip on it. You miss a couple of free throws, your butt's getting on the line to run some sprints. So a lot of us in adulthood end up exercising for one of those reasons. Either I'm chasing a calorie burn, I'm trying to undo something I did nutritionally. And trust me when I say that is a losing battle. Or it's a little more punishment-based when you look at a hit class, which, by the way, if it's 60 minutes, it's not hit. 
a hit class or some level of sprints or conditioning based on something we did or didn't do. And then as cliche as it is, exercise stops becoming about what our bodies are capable of, how fast we can be, how strong we can be, how powerful we can be. And that creates a not very enjoyable relationship with exercise. So that is the second thing is no longer using exercise as punishment in any way, shape or form. The third thing I've changed a little bit uh, is my phrasing of and recommendations for quote unquote clean eating. Because if I'm sitting here saying that I don't want people to feel guilty for splurging, but I'm grouping a certain category of foods into the clean eating category, what does that make anything but? We're going to call it cheap food. Was it dirty? Dirty would be the opposite. It's a variety of not very nice labels that we're putting on food. And we can sit here and scoff at that. But at the end of the day, if you're eating something that you deem is non-clean, however you want to call it, non-clean, cheap meal, junk food, any of these non-clean labels, how are you not supposed to eat like you're never going to get that food again? How are you supposed to not feel guilty? How are you supposed to be fully present when you're enjoying that thing? So it can seem fairly innocent. And I don't think people who say clean eating are trying to give you any sort of malicious recommendation, but the alternative is what is so detrimental. Now, I get what people are saying when they give this recommendation, mostly nutrient-dense whole food items. I'm totally on board with that. That's obviously something I recommend for my clients, but I instead now like to think of nutrition as a spectrum of the not very nutrient-dense stuff on one side, the much more nutrient-dense stuff on the other, and everything falls along that spectrum. And as long as the average of your choices ends up more on the nutrient-dense side, there's no need for us to categorize anything as whether or not it is clean eating or not. And clean eating for a fact, I know is something I used to say, but I'm sure I also used to encourage cheat days and talk about junk food and certain things like that and giving food those labels. Again, we can scoff at that. We can consider it majoring in the minors. You know what I mean, Sam, but from a practical perspective, if you were calling it that, it's very tough not to go into that deprive, overdo it type cycle. Very passionate about that one, if you can't tell. The next thing for us to look at, or the next thing I've changed my mind on, I should say, is low carbs. And again, this could be an episode in itself, but I'll share why I went low carb one time in my life ever. I was probably 15 or 16, and I read in what was likely a muscle and fitness or men's health that if you deplete your body of carbs, you end up using fat as the primary fuel source. So in my 15, 16-year-old brain, I went, okay, great. I'll just not eat bread. I'll shed a bunch of fat and I'll look great. I'll have abs. I'll look like one of the guys in the movie 300 because that's what I had in my head at the time. What either I didn't pick up on in that article or what it didn't mention is that while this is partially true, when you hear that argument being made, when I don't have carbs, I'll use fat as a fuel source. We're talking about dietary fat. So the fat that you're getting from eggs and nuts and olive oil and red meat and items like that that are higher in dietary fat content. And if we're looking at that as a fuel source, not only is it a subpar fuel source compared to carbohydrates as the primary fuel source for more intense activity. But if the goal actually was to burn as many calories as possible to contribute to weight loss, we would do a better job of that having carbs in our system. So whether you've heard that claim mentioned for a low carb diet or for a no carb diet, cough, keto, cough, know that the fat that you were burning is dietary fat. The other thing to consider is let's say 
you know, let's pretend in an alternate world that it was superior for body fat burning specifically, which it's not when calories are controlled, we have to consider the human element as well. Because that summer when I was 15, 16, whatever it was, and I avoided carbs like the plague and I bought zero carb protein powders because regular ones had a whopping one to two grams of carbohydrates, I felt so deprived. And I didn't realize it at the time. It was the first restrictive diet I had ever done until one day I went into work. My first, one of my first jobs, I was a lifeguard and it was not uncommon for families throwing birthday parties at the pool club that I worked at to give the guards cake. So we had a very nice mom come up and leave a bunch of extra leftover slices of cake. But I was by myself in this little guard shack. Nobody was there. So when nobody was looking, because in my head it didn't count, I snuck. And these are red flags. Nobody was looking. I snuck one piece of cake. It was like the best thing that I had ever had at that point in my 16 years on earth. And I essentially looked both ways, made sure nobody else was coming, rotating off a shift. And I must have had three, four, five pieces of cake, literally eating them out of my hand like I had never eaten before. And I, my decision at the time was I'll just tell whoever comes in next that there were only three or four slices because I didn't want to admit to having four or five slices of cake in a matter of two and a half minutes. And I didn't recognize it at the time because I did not have the nutritional intelligence or apparently the logic as a 16-year-old kid that my relationship with food was in such a horrible spot because I participated in something that was so wildly unsustainable and wildly unnecessary, and there was no exit strategy. And this comes up all the time with uh, low-carb diets and no-carb diets. Again, if we're talking keto here, where somebody's like, oh, I got great results on it, and then I started to waver, and then I plateaued, but I want to try it again. And I sit here challenging these people politely, of course, but challenging them like, hey, what's your exit strategy? If the thing that you're doing to get the results looks so outlandishly different from the thing that you want to do for a lifetime, you got to have a crystal clear plan for phasing out of it. Even then, it's very delicate and likely to crumble at some point. So I'm losing track of what number I'm on here, but that is the next thing that I've done, a drastic 180, unfortunately, very, very early in my career. And I believe that's number four. Next recommendation that I've completely ditched is encouraging clients to avoid the scale when they splurge the night before. And again, this was early in my online coaching days where I had a lot of people, understandably, who would stress out whether they had Chinese the night before, whether they had a hard workout the day before, whether they had a bunch of sodium, a variety of things that contribute to the scale going up. I used to leave a little note in the weigh-in section that said, you don't have to weigh in. Basically, if you think it's going to be a quote unquote bad way in and I'm thinking, well, this can help people avoid the scale stress, not realizing that that is such a massive bandaid and actually heightened scale stress. Because if you are selective about when you step on the scale based on whether or not you think you're going to have a quote unquote good weigh in. And again, those don't exist. And I'll explain why in a second then you are creating such an emotional buildup and the potential for disappointment if you step on thinking that number is going to be lower than the day before or the week before, and it's not. So the best thing you can do, and something I have all my clients do now and have for at least a couple of years now, is step on every single day, no matter what. I don't care what you did the night before. I don't care if you forgot to weigh in first thing in the morning and you had this massive diner breakfast, still step on the scale. Because the more data points we have, the more we can track these trends, the more we can look at these fluctuations and collect 
reasonably accurate, although still not overly useful, weekly body weight averages, which is the only thing that we should be looking at in regards to the scale. You should never, ever, ever step on the scale and have an expectation of a certain number because it is not about what you ate the day before. It is about your, again, gut content. It is about your menstrual cycle. It is about your hydration levels. It's about your workouts. It's about your scale quality, the time of day. So many things on a micro level that have literally nothing to do with whether or not you have gained or lost body weight or body fat specifically. But when we get a weekly body weight average and look at the long-term trends, and I'm talking week two versus week seven versus week nine, alongside of progress photos, alongside of measurements, then the scale becomes a useful tool in the toolbox. And then we also remove the emotion from it. Not like in an inhuman way. I'm never going to tell somebody stressed about the scale to just get over it. But I am going to point to them or refer them to very specific data points. Hey, you're stressed that you blew your progress because the scale's up on a Sunday or Monday morning, which is basically a given for pretty much anybody I work with. But I want you to look back at the last nine weeks of body weight averages. Six out of nine of them went down. Your measurements have gone down the last two months, and there's very noticeable differences in your progress photos. So what having access to the scale data has done has showed us that we can and should be imperfect with our nutrition and splurge in moderation, and we'll still be in a good place. Compared to the alternative, what I used to do is just tell people to run from the scale and put a Band-Aid on that scale stress instead of helping people understand it. I feel like per usual, every point here could be an episode in itself. But uh, moving on to the next one, and this is a little... I want to say debated, but some people think that this is a little too dramatic, kind of like calling foods clean versus non-clean and junk. It's a just get over. It's not a big deal. But without further ado, the sixth one is not over celebrating scale wins. And, you know, this might be a scenario where somebody reaches a 20 pound loss or a 30 pound loss or four. And I've worked with several clients who have lost 75, 85, 90, 100 plus pounds. And once upon a time, I would have really over celebrated the scale portion specifically. Oh my God, that is amazing that you lost 20, 40, 80, 100 pounds, whatever it is, and not place enough of an emphasis on the habits or the wins that got them to that point. Because if I over celebrate and say, oh my God, you lost 10 pounds. That's amazing. What happens when that person has a completely normal fluctuation and they're down, I don't know, nine pounds from their all-time highest weigh-in? Instantly, that's not that celebratory 10-pound, fairly arbitrary, to be honest, mark that they were after. That might get a little down because of that. On the other side of the coin, I can't tell somebody not to react to a weigh-in that's a little bit heavier if I'm also freaking the hell out when the scale goes down a little bit. I can't be selective about when it's okay to react to weigh-ins. So now at this point, when somebody reaches a quote-unquote milestone or a goal body weight, which I'm generally not a fan of anyway, instead of celebrating the number, I am very, very careful. I'm sure I still slip up from time to time, but generally speaking, I am very careful to celebrate oh my God, you must feel so much better. I am so proud of your consistency. I'm sure your energy levels are through the roof. And you can see with those things, they're not attached to a specific number. They're not attached to somebody maintaining. Because the truth is, when it comes to reaching the goal weight that a lot of people have, whether it's the next five pounds, the next 10, the next 20, 50, 100, you're not going to maintain that. 
when you reach that all-time lowest body weight, the second you phase out into a maintenance phase at the risk of sounding redundant, you're going to see a three to five pound plus increase on the scale. So the last thing we want to do is put your all-time lowest body weight on this big massive pedestal and celebrate the hell out of it and then act surprised when you feel stressed that you experience a normal upward fluctuation. So that is number six out of eight of things I've kind of changed my tune on or do a little bit differently, and that is over-celebrating scale wins. The seventh one is also body weight scale related, but this one is a little bit more visual. Now, this is, again, something that a lot of people will feel is over the top or unnecessary, but something I make a point to do now that I would not have done even a couple of years ago is compliment weight loss for somebody whom I'm not sure is actually pursuing weight loss. And to give a specific example of this, I ran into somebody recently that I hadn't seen in a long time, and I couldn't help but notice that they had lost a bunch of weight. And my initial kind of conditions got reactionist to go, oh my God, you look great. You look, you know, amazing. Like, congrats on the weight. Some version of that that a lot of us innocently do, like, oh my God, you lost weight. That's awesome. But when we say that without context, the thing that we're not considering is whether or not that person is sick whether or not that person is going through tremendous stress in their life and the weight loss is a byproduct of that, whether or not they're battling with body image and you know feeling a little bit more comfortable at a higher, more sustainable body fat percentage, but we're complimenting the absolute leanest version of themselves and accidentally reaffirming that you are more noteworthy and you are actually under the microscope when you are a little bit leaner. And again, a lot of people will feel this is too politically correct and too over the top and it's well-intentioned. And I'm here to tell you it is absolutely well-intentioned. It is absolutely not something that makes you a bad person. It is still something that I do from time to time. Oh my God, you look great. And some version of that. But instead I have shifted things a little bit One, I will never compliment somebody's weight loss unless they proactively share it with me. Unless they say, hey, Sam, I've actually been, you know, following this diet and I, you know, I'm down 20 pounds. But similar to what I said a minute ago about not over celebrating scale wins, I will compliment the things associated with that. So I'll say, you must be so proud of how consistent you've been. I'm sure you feel amazing. That's great that you have been able to stick with this. Some version that is not necessarily attached to that person being dramatically leaner or you know physically smaller as a human being. Because again, we don't necessarily know Even if somebody is sharing with us, we don't truly know whether or not it is stress-driven, whether or not they have been kind of shamed into doing a diet, whether or not this person is sick. So as a general rule, I have mostly gravitated away from complimenting visible weight loss because we do not know the source of that weight loss and we don't want to kind of subconsciously and innocently enough put more pressure on that person to present themselves in a certain way or look a certain way. And again, I can't stress enough. It is not malicious. And I'm not saying you can't celebrate with this person. I'm not, I mean, who am I to say you should or shouldn't do anything. But what I would encourage you to do is to consider those scenarios where complimenting weight loss could be reinforcing uh, bad habits and a potentially bad body image and make sure you're very clear, specific, and ideally empowering with the compliments that you are giving people. Which brings us to the last and eighth thing that I have changed my approach on. This one's probably the most drastic because it is the most recent. Again, I've been coaching people, training people since 2012. And for the first eight-ish 
years of that. If you told me, well, I want to lose body fat, I would have calculated a calorie range for you, probably a protein minimum and said, all right, let's get after it. Not necessarily considering, at least not enough, your dieting history, your stress levels, your sleep quality, your food quality, your step counts, your consistency with strength training, your relationship with food, so many other things that will make or break your long-term success, which is why now, and I've talked about this a little on the show before, implement something called a primer period for all new clients. And again, this is not something that I used to do. I probably started at some point in 2020 doing this, maybe even a little bit more recently. I'm blanking on the timeline. And the purpose of the primer period is twofold, to logistically and physiologically prepare you to have a smooth dieting experience. And honestly, nobody ever wants to do this. Imagine hiring a coach, making a big investment and saying, hey, I really want to lose some fat. And I sit here and say, great, that's not going to make sense for you for at least two months if you're interested in having a non-miserable diet and getting results that you actually get to keep. And that's the big caveat here is you actually get to keep the results and you get to stop being a lifelong dieter. But if we go ahead and participate in this primer period anyway, logistically, when all of your habits are in a better place, when you have a better relationship with food, when you are generally more active, and I'm not talking workouts, I'm talking you know, six to 8,000 steps a day, when your stress levels are reasonably managed, when your sleep hygiene, which is a combination of your habits and your environment are in a good place, great. We have the logistical foundation for a successful diet and a much easier time maintaining fat loss results. And physiologically speaking, you get a little bit of a metabolic boost and your maintenance calories, how many it takes to maintain your body weight, are in a higher, excuse me, are in a more elevated place. So let's say you initially came to me and your maintenance calories were 1,700 and hormonally you weren't in a good place. And people take this a little bit too far, by the way, and blame their hormones for everything. I'm just talking hunger sky high. You can never get full. You always feel kind of crappy. Maintenance calories are low. And we take care of that alongside getting all your habits in a really good place, which obviously works together. Now, not only will the diet be way smoother, but you know, six weeks from now, six months from now, six years from now, when I check in and say, hey, how's it going? Great. It's still going great compared to caving in in a way and giving in to that desire to just dive headfirst into a diet we're not ready for and then act shocked when we get yo-yo results again because we were ridiculously impatient, not in a healthy enough place to maximize a diet and not in a good place to maintain those results long term. So per usual, <laughs> wrapping up with the eighth one, excuse me, the eighth one, that could be an episode in itself. And I probably will do a whole episode on that at some point. But this is, uh, I should say, these were a mismatch of eight things that I have changed my stance on, opinion on, changed my approach with. And hopefully you also learned a little something along the way. Uh, if you enjoyed this episode, if you have been a consistent listener of Transformation Talks and you have not yet taken a minute to uh, leave a rating or a review, if you're feeling ambitious, it would truly mean the world to me. This is something that I didn't realize that I didn't do enough until I became the podcast guy who's asking other people for ratings and reviews. And uh, now I have gone out of my way. If I'm enjoying something, it is quite literally the easiest way to 
pay somebody back in a way. And I say that very loosely. You don't know anybody, anything for just putting out some content. If you feel like you're getting something out of it and you want to help other people do the same, it is by far the best way to get the show in front of more people. So thank you for joining me today. Per usual, if you have any questions at all on anything that we went over, uh, my website is the best place to reach me, which is currently still HerculesPerformance.com, but uh, we'll be undergoing a big shift soon. So you can actually go ahead and type in SamForge.com. It'll still direct you to Hercules Performance, but eventually it'll just be Sam Forge. That's F O R G E T.com. Again, if you have any questions or need anything at all, you just drop me a message there and I will personally get back to you and make sure that you're taken care of. 